about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. As Roger mentioned, my name is Andrew and this is the second in our series on uh, Abraham and Abraham's faith. Um, I'm just going to move these and then let's pray. Father, speak to us this morning through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may see things clearly and put aside our own false judgments. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the things, there is an outline in the service sheets. Uh, You've probably got an outline on the way in, um, if that's of use to you. Um, One of the things that riles people most about Christianity and the Christian faith is the idea of God's judgment and of things like God's wrath and hell. Can't Christians just shut up about all this stuff? Uh, If that's how you feel, uh, it may surprise you or perhaps not to learn that uh, this opinion is also very present within the church generally. Uh, In every church I've been a part of, whenever the sermons start to focus in on issues of God's judgment, some people get anxious and a bit grumpy perhaps. Even if it is the first time in years the preaching has paid attention to this theme, The question is asked, why do we always need to go on about such negative things? Because in our age, the idea of God's judgment, let alone his wrath, is not at all popular. Uh, I don't think it's been popular in any age, actually. Uh, But in our age, it seems to be especially difficult for people to stomach. It would be interesting to discuss where this comes from. Uh, I think it has something to do with the powerful modern tendency to think about people almost entirely as victims rather than responsible agents. But whatever the reasons, that's not what I'm going to talk about today, uh, this is something you bump up against as a Christian uh, and when you're part of churches and especially if you've ever tried trying to explain the gospel to someone, whether it's your friends, family, people at work, And certainly, let me say, as a preacher. So much so that the temptation is there to simply avoid mentioning God's judgment. To work out ways of explaining the Christian faith and promoting Jesus without talking about things like wrath. Perhaps we can find purely positive ways of speaking about Jesus. What he adds to our lives, perhaps. How he enhances human life and so on. Because, you know... He does add things, he does enhance. Can't we find a way of sharing Jesus that doesn't involve talking about things like God's wrath? Now, I don't know how that idea sounds to you. Uh, For some of us, I expect it is genuinely attractive. Finding a way to dispense with judgment and wrath and hell and all that. Others of us will be less confident with it, less comfortable with it, because um, we can't see how you can get away from it in the Bible. Yet can I suggest that this is something we all need to think about. 
Because even if we don't think it's a good idea to stop talking about God's judgment, even if that's you, it's one thing to think that, it's quite another to actually do it. I suspect the truth is that deep down, many of us, certainly me, in fact find the prospect of God's wrath very difficult and perhaps painful. And this feeling will drive us and shape us in various ways, even, in fact, especially if we don't acknowledge it up front. This is why we need to take time to get this issue out in the open, to think about God's judgment and why we might need to know about it. Well, this is what the second story in our series from Genesis helps us do. Uh, This story, which picks up where we left off last time, but don't worry if you missed last week, it'll be okay in its own right. It picks off after a meal, it leaves off after a meal Abraham and Sarah provide for a party of angels. Uh, And this story before us is one of the most famous and most disturbing stories of God's wrath in the whole Bible. It would be good to have a Bible open before you to Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Uh, It's the passage about the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the passage where fire and brimstone originally comes from. And it regularly features as a pin-up example of what people slur as the nasty God of the Old Testament. Though as we'll see, the truth of it is far different. Jesus himself drew on this story to warn people of the reality of God's judgment. As we'll see, though, this story is not simply a scary example of judgment. It's also a story about Abraham, about how Abraham grapples with what's going on and comes to a new understanding. And this is why it's an important story for us. Because Abraham's experience can remind us of why we need to not shut our eyes to these things. This is a much longer story than the previous one. We're going to go through most of chapter 19 as well. So it will be helpful to have the passage in front of you as I walk us through it. Let's begin, though, from our reading, where we left off after the meal. Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. If you're looking for it, it's on page 16. Verse 16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down, the men there is is this group of angels and the Lord. They looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him. To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. The visitors set off, accompanied by their host. And as they go, we we get to hear God thinking to himself. Shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Or shall I hide it? Says God. It's a fascinating insight of a kind you don't often get. Uh, God, of course, is not actually unsure of himself. I think this moment is simply for our benefit, so that we gain understanding. And the key to this understanding is, I think, in the transition 
from verses 17 to verse 18. God asks a question and then kind of gives his reasons for his answer. Uh, In the end, as we'll see, God does not hide from Abraham what he's about to do. He he decides he's not going to hide it. And so verses 18 to 19 there must be the reason he decides to do this. Why does God decide not to hide from Abraham what he's about to do? Because Abraham's calling is to be the source of God's blessing to the nations. Abraham's role in God's mission to save the world, that is, that's what means he needs to know about what is God, God is about to do. And so in verse 20, God lets him in on it. Have a look at it there, verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. The Lord tells Abraham that his journey to Sodom is an act of judgment. He is not passing sentence yet. But he is getting close. He has heard some damning evidence. There has been a great outcry against the cities. This idea of an outcry is a powerful and important biblical image. It's it's the Bible's way of depicting God's concern about injustice. Injustice and evil create an outcry. Much like actually they do today in 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 a way. People cry out for justice. There's a sense of outrage. The Bible speaks about that too. And it's an image of a sense that something is out of joint here. That there is a wrong that needs righting. Here God says he is responding to an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. A terrifyingly great outcry that has necessitated his personal attention. He is going down to determine its truth in order to verify that it is what it seems to be. Now the implication of this is that unless there has been some mistake, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be annihilated. And Abraham understands this and it drives him to speak very abruptly to God in verse 23, very boldly. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? Abraham's response to God's disclosure of what he is doing is one of shock. But not just shock, there is a real sense of indignation in what he says here. His first question is not, are you really going to destroy these cities? But he puts it differently. He says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? It's a question that is already a criticism. Because it already assumes that the facts of the situation lie in a certain way. Or to put it more explicitly... Abraham assumes that there are, in fact, many righteous people in Sodom. Abraham is sure, you see, that the destruction of the city could could not possibly be just. He's appalled by the thought. 
And so he appeals to God's justice. He reminds God of his own just character. And he tests it by saying, what if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you still destroy it? It, It's a bold, even self-assured engagement with God. God responds, though, by simply granting the request implied by Abraham's question. In fact, he gives him more than he asks for. Abraham had only complained of the indiscriminacy of God's judgment, that it didn't distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, but God declares that he'll do far more than discriminate. Verse 26, the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. He will spare the whole city if there are 50 righteous people. Now, this success and kind of surprise leads Abraham to suddenly become aware of who he's speaking to again and speak more respectfully and yet still boldly. He seeks what he thinks are further concessions from God. Verse 27, then Abraham spoke up again, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, maybe at the back of his mind is remembering that mostly when people do that, they die. Though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? Uh, Do you notice the clever way that Abraham kind of whittles God down? Okay, okay, so you said 50, God. 45 is only five less than 50. Uh, you You wouldn't let those five make the difference, would you? But God is still quite relaxed. If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Verse 29, once again, he, Abraham, spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? You can see that Abraham feels he is pushing things here. Being a bit too bold, but again, God is happy to grant his request. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And so it continues. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I'll not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And then the Lord takes Abraham that his word, that that's where he was going to stop. And he leaves off speaking and Abraham returned home. I think there's a growing sense of uneasiness here. Abraham, as we've seen, begins with an air of almost moral indignation. Yet he, he gradually discovers that God is far more merciful than he expected and maybe even than he himself thought was appropriate. God goes with Abraham at every step so that when the conversation comes to an end, when the Lord finishes speaking with him, we're left unsettled. At the beginning, Abraham rushes in with an air of moral indignation, confident that he knows the truth about how things stand and about what God's judgment should look like, and it's not that. But at the end, he and we with him are left with an eerie sense of foreboding about how much he may, in fact, have not understood. Well, the story that follows in chapter 19 shows that Abraham's assumptions about the situation were, in fact, profoundly wrong. Follow the story with me from verse 1. It's not a pleasant story, but it's important. Have a look there, verse 1 of chapter 19. 
The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Uh, That's basically all you need to know. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. As Abraham had done just previously, Lot insists on showing the strangers hospitality. Yet there is something darker in Lot's insistence than there was in Abraham's. Lot, Abraham's nephew, as I said, had been a resident of Sodom for many years now. And from what follows, we can only assume that he could imagine and feared what was about to unfold. Verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied, verse 9. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? They're talking about Lot. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside, verse 10, reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The scene is grotesque. All the people of the city, we are told, both young and old, to the last man, come to Lot's house with the intention of raping his guests. The main crime here is the intended abuse of those who were meant to be protected as guests. It's not the fact that it was a same-sex rape that was intended. Although, there is no doubt that the same-sex nature of the crime made it worse in the eyes of the writer of Genesis. The Bible consistently teaches that there is something distorted about same-sex intercourse. And as revolting as that is to us, I think this is partly why Lot desperately offers his two daughters to appease the mob. Uh, By the way, just because Lot does that, it doesn't mean it was a good thing to do. That's not how the Bible works. This is a story showing lots of things. The point of this story is that the whole thing is utterly debased. But the men refuse Lot and press forward and it seems that if... If it were not for the intervention of these angels, Lot and his whole household would have been raped and murdered. This is a city, we are meant to realise, that has become obsessed with sexual violence and perversion. And it cannot go on. In verse 12, the angels tell Lot the truth of the matter. Verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you. Get them out of here. 
because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Now, we'll skip over the verses that follow, but they describe Lot's frantic flight from the city. He can't convince his sons-in-law to be to come, but he takes his wife and daughters and they flee, and all the while the the angels are telling him, flee for your lives, they say, don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. And then if you just look down at verse 23... The judgment of God falls with fury. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The Lord utterly destroys these cities and communities, everything living in the land, and Lot's wife, who looks back, unable to truly turn her back on the terrible place that had become her home, she is consumed along with it. And early next morning, less than 24 hours since he had welcomed these strangers to his tent, Abraham goes and sees it. Verse 27, this is where we'll finish. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Let's ask, what must have gone through Abraham's mind as he stood watching this dreadful holocaust? Shock and sadness, certainly. Perhaps he does not yet know that his prayers were not completely unsuccessful because some of his relatives, his nephew Lot, they have survived. But as he stood in exactly the same place, we're meant to see, I think, that this must also have been a moment of awakening for Abraham. A deeply humbling moment as he reflected on his conversation with God the evening before. He had been so bold, so sure that he was seeing things rightly. It could not possibly be right for God to destroy this city. How could he sweep away the wicked and the righteous like that? But now he was faced with the grim truth. God had never intended to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. God's decision that Sodom should be destroyed had been proved just. What had been shown to be mistaken were Abraham's assumptions. That Sodom was not as bad as all that. That there were righteous people in Sodom. And at this point, finally, we should remember how our story began back in verse 16 of chapter 18 with God's deliberation over whether to hide his plans from Abraham and his decision that Abraham did did indeed need to know. Now we see what this meant. What Abraham needed to understand, you see, was the truth about God's judgment and the grim reality of human evil. He needed to have this experience of being let in on God's plans to judge 
and feeling horrified and indignant, but then discovering that it was actually his own assumptions that were at fault. And he needed to know this for the sake of mission. He needed to know this, as we saw back in chapter 18, verse 18, because he was to become a great nation through whom all nations of the earth would be blessed. For I have chosen him, said God, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he had promised him. If Abraham was to play this role, if he was to carve out a new way of being in the world of justice and righteousness, then he needed to know the truth about God's judgments and the limits of his own. Well, that's all pretty awful. Where does it leave us today? Why have I chosen this story? Well, to be a Christian is to be like Abraham, caught up in and committed to God's project to save the world, to bring blessing to the ends of the earth. And what this story about Abraham reminds us of is that this cannot be done properly if our sense of what is right and good, what is just and what is evil, if our sense of it is hazy. If we are to do, if, sorry, if we are to be a part of God's mission, then we need to know about the judgment of God. And not just our ideas of God's judgment, but the truth of it. Because it is so easy, so easy indeed, for us to be like Abraham at the beginning of this story. Shocked by the prospect of judgment. Appalled and embarrassed by it. And frankly, almost ready to reproach God for it. God's gentleness with Abraham reminds us, I think, that this is, at least in a limited way, it's it's understandable and excusable. And yet, if we are to do mission, we cannot stay like that. We need, like Abraham, to keep being woken up to the reality of human wickedness, the reality of the justice of God's condemnation and the reality of our own mistaken perspective. We need to keep being shown that because we live in this world and amongst its assumptions and excuses, we start to see things from its perspective and so end up drastically underestimating the reality of sin and evil. And so we need to keep coming back to the Bible and letting God's revelation shape our understanding like it does here with Abraham. And even if it is sometimes difficult, and if perhaps like Abraham, maybe you feel a bit like this, like Abraham looking down on the plain, we would rather look away. We need to keep letting our judgments of the world around us be shaped by God's judgments that have been revealed to us. Because mission cannot be done properly if we are only half awake to ultimate things or have our eyes closed to them. The faithful mission requires us to stay awake to things that we do not like and that our human assumptions keep putting us asleep to. But we must also finally remember 
that we know the deepest reason why this is true. Why mission requires us to stay awake to the reality of judgment. Because we have seen far more of what God's promises involve than Abraham ever could have. And we know that many, many years after this moment, the Lord again went down amongst his people, amongst the people, in response to the grievousness of their sin. Only this time he did not send his angels, but his own beloved son. And he did not come to send wrath, but to suffer it himself. God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, came as the one truly righteous man for whose sake God would forgive a whole world of wickedness. Because he bore in our place the penalty we deserved. As we heard the Apostle Peter write, when he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Brothers and sisters, God has committed himself at the cost of his own son to suffering wrath himself rather than sending it upon us. That is why we cannot shrink from a faith and a ministry and a preaching program and a church life that is fully awake to the prospect of judgment and willing to speak speak of it. And this is why Christians may not shut up about God's judgment. And we must not hide it. Because if we do, we will be hiding much more than God's wrath. We will be hiding his grace. And silencing the word of the cross where God took his wrath upon himself. If we cannot see God's judgment clearly, then nor finally will we see his grace clearly, nor will we see Jesus. Difficult this aspect of faith may be, but we have no liberty to do without it. And finally, let me say, if you are not a Christian and you are hearing this appallingly difficult sermon that it confirms all your assumptions about church and ministers, can I ask you to please hear this? The persistence of Christians, even like today, in speaking of things like wrath and judgment should not be just an irritating nuisance. At its best, it is a gift to the world to wake us up to reality And allow us to receive God's gracious love. Can I encourage you to let it drive you not to offence, but to curiosity, and then perhaps to thankfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this difficult story in the book of Genesis. We thank you for the way you dealt gently with Abraham in the midst of it. And we ask, please, for the faith to submit to your word, to submit to your judgments, and to learn to see the world in the right of them, in the light of them. 
so that we may also see the cross most clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.